tēnā koutou, no mai hai to mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tang. This morning, should New Zealand legalise a form of assisted dying? We get the politicians' views, plus those of two Kiwis who are nearing the end of their lives. So you don't really know whether you would qualify at the I moment. May, Technically, I'm, you probably wouldn't. I may not be here come the 1st of July next year. I just believe so strongly that, you know, even if you believe in euthanasia, this bill is flawed. We want to examine the detail of the Act and exactly what it would mean for doctors who agree to help patients end their lives. Look, I've spent 35 years of my life practising how to keep people alive. This is something completely new. Later on, we will also discuss Labor's new tax policy as it attracts criticism from all sides. But we are beginning this morning by taking a considered look at the end-of-life choice referendum. This is the question voters will be asked at the polls next month. Do you support the End of Life Choice Act 2019 coming into force? Now, of course, this is a binding referendum. If the yes vote gets more than 50%, it will pass into law. Before we look at the arguments, we will remind you who would qualify for euthanasia if the Act is voted into law. You would have to be a New Zealand citizen over the age of 18, suffering from a terminal illness likely to end your life within six months. You would have to have a significant and ongoing decline in physical capability and experience unbearable suffering that cannot be eased. You would have to be able to make an informed decision about assisted dying. A person would not be eligible to ask for assisted dying if the only reason they give is that they are suffering from a mental disorder or mental illness or have a disability of any kind or are of advanced age. The central question for this referendum is one of choice. Should a person who meets those criteria be able to choose when to die? We'll start with the views of two New Zealanders, both of whom have terminal illnesses and who have reluctantly found themselves at the forefront of this debate. Fina Owen has their stories. And the oncologist said to me, um, if you don't have any treatment, you'll be dead somewhere between six and 12 weeks. Small cell lung cancer, stage four, um, with uh, secondaries in my liver. While it's incurable and inoperable, um, the outlook looks better for some time to come. There's nothing in this bill which makes euthanasia compulsory. It's, 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 it's an option for the person choosing to die because life for them no longer has meaning. No doctor can be forced to make, uh, to make that choice to assist. If there are signs of pressure from the family coming on the dying person, the doctor must cease the process around assisting the dying person. So there are all kinds of backstops in this piece of legislation. I think really what began to change my mind on the issue in particular was the later stages of my, of, of my mother's life. Um, Mum died aged 98. Um, and it was quite clear that she wished she died some years earlier. I think that's where I changed my mind about uh, assisted dying for people who had got beyond the stage where life was one that gave them dignity. Now the legislation which is you know, the subject of the referendum doesn't really go as far as many of us would like. It's, um, to get through the House it 
has so many restrictions around it. Do you think it should have gone further? Uh, I, I think there are a number of things where it, it should have gone further. I mean, the requirement for the doctor to say you're going to die within six months, um, I mean, my oncologist can't tell me how long I've got to live. Uh, he will, in the late stages, or then be very clear. So, I, I so probably, you don't really know whether you would qualify at I the may, moment. I'm, Technically, you probably wouldn't. I may not be here come the 1st of July next year. I think it's highly unlikely I'll still be alive come the 1st of July next year when the, the, the Act will come into force if it's passed. About the argument against assisted dying. Another terminally ill New Zealander, Vicky Walsh in the Manawatu, is urging people to vote no. We had a really good life, I had a really great job that I loved and um, worked with people that I just adored. Yeah, I just, I really had a wonderful life. Yeah, everything I could have asked for. So I was very healthy, so I guess that, like, I didn't have a lot of symptoms, didn't have headaches, didn't have any of the normal symptoms that you would think go along with having a brain tumour. So they sent me for an MRI and um, came back into the room and the doctor held my hand and said to me, you've got a mass on your brain. And I actually didn't even know what that meant. The prognosis was about 12 to 14 months. So I got very sick and um, I think we all thought that the prognosis was gonna be on the shorter end. There were things coming across of euthanasia sites or assisted suicide sites. and. I was starting to buy into it. You know, the whole thing about it is that um, you'll be in enormous pain and, and, and I didn't want that and I didn't want my family to see me like that. I did not want to be a burden. That, that particular day when um, I was going to take my life, it wasn't a bad day. It was one of my days where I felt very in control. I now recognise that I was obviously depressed, mainly going through the grief cycle and in shock. The big things that I would have missed out on is that I had one grandchild then, um, and now I have five, and we've got baby bump due in February. So those little, you know, those little cherubs, they just fill me with so much joy. I've received so much hate mail. You know, I got mail the other day to say, um, I hope you die a slow, slow and prolonged death. You know, like I've never wished that upon like, for me, it's not about you're right and I'm wrong, because I don't think any of us on either side um, want to see anyone in pain or suffering. Um, it's definitely not my intention. I think people think that, that what they're being asked is, do you want to see people suffer? And the answer to me would be, no, I don't want to see people suffer either. So hopefully I'll get that nice death, but, you know, you can't guarantee that. Um, but I trust in that, and I trust that um, my death will be with dignity and that I'll get to live with dignity up until that point. I'm gonna see this journey through um, to its natural conclusion. And I trust in the palliative teams. I just believe so strongly that, you know, even if you believe in euthanasia, this bill is flawed. We now have a referendum and maybe there are some of these sorts of issues where you need to have the public to say what the position is because then Politicians might find it easier to, to accept it and, and, and to move on. Fina Owen with that report. After the break, MPs David Seymour and Alfred Nardal debate the Act and we consider the process of helping someone to die from a doctor's perspective. I would have to be physically trained up under what medicines, what dosage and what to look for because it is not part of my normal medical training. We are not taught to kill.
Kia ora te whana. welcome back to Q&A. The medical, the medical community is divided in its position on assisted dying. The Medical Association opposes the Act, while the College of GPs has chosen not to take an official position, noting its members share a range of opinions. But we wanted the perspective of a doctor who supports the Act, given they are the health professionals who will theoretically be helping patients end their lives. GP Dr John Cameron is one such doctor. And I started by asking him how doctors determine if someone is within six months of dying. Choosing or trying to predict a date of death uh, is a range of dates rather than an exact date or time. You can say someone within that clinical scenario, the chances of them dying within the six months are much greater than 80, 90%. And that's probably where you would sit it. Some people will live longer than that, some people will live considerably shorter than that. But it's trying to, it's a judgment, a clinical mm. judgment that you make. Um, and that can be assisted with other colleagues, with specialist colleagues uh, from the hospital or privately that can assist you in that decision making. So, so it wouldn't necessarily have to be a specialist. Say, for example, no. uh, I was a cancer patient, I wouldn't have to rely on the, the prognosis from an oncologist. No. It may be part of the puzzle that you would put into place. Plus, you're also relying on the experience of the practitioner that you're dealing with. And in the first instance, mostly this will occur within your primary care framework, within your GP surgery. Mm. Now, there can be a chance that your GP doesn't agree with enacting end-of-life care. They, they don't believe in this as being part of their process, in which case the GP needs to tell you that that's the case, but then refer you on to a special group which is about to be set up. One of the other critical determinations that the first doctor whom a patient speaks to about assisted dying must make is whether or not that patient is being coerced in any way. Yeah. That, that is a massive decision for any carer to make. How would a doctor go about making that determination? Some very simple questionings. And, and it's not just what the patient answers, it's how the patient answers it. Uh, you will ask them, you know, is this your choice? Have you made this decision uh, totally within yourself? Is it a chance that other people may have influenced you on that? And if any of those has a red flag sign saying, yes, it might be, you can then put a hold on it. And the other part to this, it's not just that one individual GP who's making that decision. Every case that comes forward mm. for end-of-life care and assisted dying then needs to go on to an independent GP under that uh, support and, and consultation agency who will make an independent review as well. Now, if both of you are concerned or if one of you has concerned, it will then go on to a psychiatrist to provide a third independent review of the independence of the thought process of that individual. And, and so what, there are a lot of checks in that. What is the threshold for concern, though? Because, I mean, it must be very difficult to try and determine in a, in a simple conversation with a patient whether or not they are being coerced by someone who's not in the room. Yeah, it, it's, it's a simple life and death decision. So you, you err on the side of safety throughout all of this. And part of that is your knowledge of the patient. So I would be very uncomfortable if there was a patient that was totally new to my practice that rocks up and says, hey, doc, I want you to do my assisted dying. I've got no knowledge of who that individual is or what their whānau is, what the interactions are, and I would be very careful in that state. So you, you mentioned whānau. Does family have any say when it comes to a person's decision? No. 
In actual fact, no. We have to advise, and we always would advise the patient to discuss this with people who are important to them to make sure that they seek their views. But there is no requirement that the whanau be involved in this decision, no. And, and if all of those criteria are satisfied, how does a person go about dying? Right, so there, there's all the paperwork which is done. And in the end, it goes off to that uh, ministry agency who will review each case and then come back to the prescriber and say, yes, we agree. Once that is obtained, there's a six-month window into which that agreement can be enacted. Now, um, at any point in that time, the person who's requested assisted dying can say no and remove himself from it, up until the time when they actually take the medication. Um, look, I've spent 35 years of my life practising how to keep people alive. This is something completely new. And I think, in my personal view, it's something which is actually missing, potentially missing from the Act, and that there is no educational requirement within the Act to require that GPs are upskilled to be able to take these con uh, consultations mm. and actually to prescribe how do we actually kill somebody? How do we take their life? And it's not something which just drops off, you know. You have to do it painlessly, with dignity and calmly and the most compassionate and... A healthy way, in actual fact. Um, most of it is done through a medicine called barbiturate. Barbiturates are heavily sedating agencies. Within the Act, there are four processes that you can use for uh, administering the medicine. One is that the, it's an oral medicine that the patient willingly takes on their own volition. Cool. Option two is an injectable process which the patient initiates off their own volition. Option three is a oral agent which is administered by somebody else, either through a nasogastric tube or orally. And the fourth one is where the uh, either the GP or nurse practitioners who are also allowed to enact under the act administers through an IV push. Um, and so I would have to be physically trained up under what medicines, what dosage and what to look for because it is not part of my normal medical training. We are not taught to kill. That is GP Dr John Cameron. OK, here to debate this referendum are two MPs with strong views on either side of the argument. Act leader David Seymour, who of course drove the issue through Parliament, and National MP Alfred Ngaro. He's here to present his personal view, not that of the National Party. Mr Ngaro has been an outspoken critic as the bill has progressed through the House. Kia ora kōrua. David, I will start with you. This has been a long campaign. Why do you feel so personally strongly about this issue? Because it's about the dignity of people who have lived good lives and want their death uh, to carry on the same way. I think about somebody like Bobby Carroll from Piha on the west of Auckland. You know, Bobby has lived a fuller, bigger life than just about anyone I've had the pleasure of meeting. But she has blood cancer. Uh, she's concerned about how that will end. Uh, and she fiercely defends her right to choose how she goes when she goes, the terms and the timing of her death, and I think to deny her that choice and force her to suffer in dignity when we know that around the world this type of legislation uh, allows people safe choice uh, would be a terrible outcome. I'm encouraging people to vote yes, so people like her, like Sir Michael Cullen, like Lucretia Seals, and so many others uh, can have control as their life ends and go on their terms with the same dignity and death uh, that they had in life. Alfred, why do you feel so strongly? Well, Dr John Cameron said it. We've not been taught to kill. 
This would change the basic laws of the land for state-sanctioned killing in our nation. We've repealed and removed corporal punishment. So therefore, because the choice and the opportunity to make a mistake is there. So what we're saying is this, 39,000 submissions that came through this process, 90.6% opposed this bill under one principle, it being unsafe. 1,700 doctors signed an open letter. Palliative care specialists said it was ethically and medically unsafe. Over 300 lawyers, QC, said the issue around coercion, it is unable, it is complex to be able to ensure that there is no coercion mm -hmm. who signed openly, who said this is unsafe, and you would have heard from Vicky Walsh herself, she said, this bill is flawed if you believe in euthanasia. Why? There are just too many risks. Jack, it doesn't get any more important than this. This is life and death. A lot of submissions against the bill, mm. but I note that opinion polling so far suggests a majority of New Zealanders support this act coming into force. And we will unpack some of those issues mm. you've just identified there. Let's start with why we need this. Because, um, you know, David, I note that the Care Alliance and many palliative care specialists mm. suggest that this is an easy solution mm. to our palliative care mm. situation in New Zealand and, and actually that by improving palliative care in New Zealand we wouldn't require any form of assisted dying. Yeah and, and look people ask this question why not just do better at palliative care I think there's, there's two answers to that that are both important one is that you look at Lucretia Seals she had cancer up against her brain stem uh, the only way you can palliate that is basically to give her so much morphine uh, that she'd completely lose control of herself uh, she didn't want that and in Lucretia Seals court case both sides accepted as uncontested evidence that palliative care is great but it doesn't help everybody I mean my own mother died in a hospice with good palliative care uh, but it's not enough for everyone some people for example are allergic to pain medication um, so it doesn't work for everyone second thing is uh, I'd say to you Jack is that um, if you look around the world at countries that have assisted dying they also have better palliative care usually than countries that don't if you look inside countries where they have assisted dying people that take advantage of assisted dying laws tend to be people that have better access to palliative care and I think that what, what that tells us is that they're not competing alternatives they're complementary uh, when a country starts taking end-of-life care seriously um, it or more seriously it actually has both options on the table because they actually go mm -hmm. together rather than competing yeah isn't this the point Alfred that, that it's about choice if, if you are unfortunate enough to find yourself in this position and, and you want to have palliative care, you can choose the palliative care option, but this gives you another choice. Well, we, we already have choice uh, here, uh, Jack. Uh, for instance, the fact is that the Section 11 of the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act give people the choice to actually undergo, actually to forfeit <coughs> any form of medical treatment, right? Um, the thing is, is that the polling that you're talking about, 85% of people who were polled mm. still think that euthanasia is withdrawing, for instance, life support, or could be medical treatment, or could be food, when it's none of those things. In fact, we already have them. In fact, the truth is, euthanasia and assisted suicide in this case is a lethal dose to kill. And as John Cameron said, we change the laws of the land because it's now state-sanctioned killing in our nation. Look, I just 
put it to, to Alfred and people who think that way. First of all, as a politician, it's, it's never wise um, to say that the voters are uninformed. I think the reason why there's so much support for this is that people have compassion for others, that they've seen bad death, and the people that they saw die badly, mm. they had the status quo, they had the options that Alfred's talking about, uh, but those options still saw them die terribly, even with the best palliative care, even with the ability to starve themselves to death, which is refusing food, even with the ability to refuse other treatments. You know, the Supreme Court of Canada called that the cruel choice. Mm. The reason there's so much public support is not because the public are misinformed, as, as, as Alfred would, would have it, although well, some of Alfred's friends well, are doing their best not, to misinform. No, 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 because no, the thing uh, is the, this. The reason, the reason is that they have observed how things actually work right now and they want more options. Let me ask this, yep. let me ask this Alfred. Is it, is it humane to require someone near the end of their life to refuse medical treatment or to refuse food if they want to die? Well, well Jack, we know that those care facilities and palliative care is actually there for people. The question that uh, really has to be debated... That's, that's the option that, you just that, gave that, me. When, 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 hang yeah. on. The, the, the issue is this. When David's been talking about those who are at their end of life with pain, if you ask the palliative care specialist, let's take Dr Catherine Maddox, right, who was a, a pioneer mm. around palliative care, out of the 12,000, over 40 years of her service as a palliative care specialist, out of the 12,000 patients she saw, the number of those in which palliative uh, care and pain medication could not meet their threshold was 12. So the numbers are small. But what about Jack, those 12 people? Why not give those Jack, 12 people an option? Absolutely. So if this bill was small enough so that it dealt with that issue, then absolutely. But Jack, that's not the case here. It is so broad and open. Jack, if you've got people in the disability community, people in, in, in ethnic communities, Māori and otherwise, who are saying, Jack, this is culturally unsafe, this is not going to deal with the issues of coercion. Mm. And, you know, what you call David talks well, about the, talk the about cases of Canada, yeah. Yeah. but those issues of concern are still there. OK, OK. I, I mean, it's true that, that many disability advocates have opposed this Act, but it's also true that the Act clearly stipulates that a person with a disability would not meet the Only criteria. Only change when the Greens decided... Would, that I know, but, that, but this is the Act that's, that's that we are debating the, here, isn't it? Yeah, so, so yeah. It, it clearly stipulates that a person with a disability would yeah. not meet the criteria for assisted dying. Well, that, there, are still, yeah. there are still concerns, though, aren't there, about coercion. Mm. How do we ensure that someone is not being coerced, even if that coercion is not overt? Mm. So if you look at the, the, what people have to go through, this is a very extensive process. And actually, the, the good doctor that you had on uh, only outlined a, a relatively small part of it. Uh, you know, the person has to approach mm. the doctor. The doctor can't approach them. The doctor can conscientiously object if they would like to. They then have conversations over a period of time at intervals determined by the progress mm. um, of their terminal illness. Uh, the person has to know all their options, be told they can change uh, their mind and understand they can change their mind at any time. Uh, you know, the doctor has to talk but to other medical professionals. But how someone's still not getting a little bit of pressure from Well, well this is the thing, this is the thing. Let's just go through this well, process. And when you get to the end of it, tell me if you really <laughs> think uh, that you're going to have undetected coercion. So the next thing that happens is that they have to encourage them to talk to anyone else that they think they should, ensure that the person uh, has that option. Mm. Uh, then they have to talk to, did I mention, other medical professionals uh, involved in their care. Uh, they have to discuss their prognosis, all of the other potential treatments. They have to discuss the outcome of assisted dying and what it actually mm. means to go through with it. Uh, that's just the preliminary 
and this can take over several months. Uh, that's before you mm. get to the actual application. Then you go through the six criteria that were listed in the package. Yeah. And having established all those things, 18, New Zealand citizen or permanent resident, terminal illness, advanced state of irreversible decline, physical capability, of sound mind, potentially also checked mm. by a psychiatrist, and that it's the person's view, and this is critical and it didn't quite come through in the package, the person's view, not anyone else's, that knowing all the other options, they cannot actually alleviate their suffering mm. in any other way they find tolerable. Then a second doctor independently examines them again. It, if at any time during that process uh, the doctor is required by law with the possibility of going to jail for getting it wrong to report if they even suspect pressure. So, Alfred, so yeah. that, that's, that's the process. And, okay. and, I, and I'm just running through. Well, I mean, I've, no, I've I know you're running through the detail of the well, I've missed yeah, several yeah, yeah. parts well, it, of no, okay, it. Okay. It may sound technical and it may sound right, but look, the Ministry of Health already re produced a report that says the reality is that from decision to death can take as, as less as four days. In the act, it's only requiring a minimum of 48 hours. Jack, what we're talking about is the fact is that the safeguards mm. that David's talk about are not there. For instance, he talks about the different legislation. He likes to look about Canada, for instance. There in Canada, legislation there, for instance, requires that there be two independent witnesses, right? To ensure both in the signing and the implementation of this, mm. so that those independent witnesses can ensure there is no coercion. In Canada and Oregon and Victoria, for instance, they ensure that there's a psychiatric assessment that is done at the forefront, but also too, when the lethal dose is administered, there's a psychiatric assessment to ensure there's mental competency that they are making the well, right sure, decision. But under, this is under, okay. yeah, but, but hang on a second. Hang on. Under, under our legislation, first of all, uh, the second doctor uh, is independent. Uh, under our legislation, that's got no relationship, any, no connection any, at all question, with the patient. If there's any well, 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 okay, well, okay, well, no, 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 okay, no, 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 hang on, hang on. You know what? Wait a second. Let's pause here. No, 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 I'm going to step in. We're going to pause here. We'll take a little break, and then we'll come back to our referendum in a couple of minutes. Why are many Kiwi doctors opposed to the act? Is the proposed law asking too much of them? You'll be surprised to know that the debate has been continuing in the ad break. Welcome back to David Seymour and Alfred Ngaro. This constitutes a societal shift, doesn't it? I mean, I mean in, in that the state is officially sanctioning the deliberate death of its own conscious adult citizens. How do we ensure this doesn't go further? First of all, it's a, it's a, it is a shift in a very positive direction because the realities that we face now, I'm sorry to say it, but uh, amateur... You know, violent suicide. Uh, you look at this woman, Vicky Walsh, that you had on earlier. Um, you know, I wish that this law was in place when she attempted, sadly, to take her own life. Because if she had gone to talk to a doctor about her prognosis, uh, they probably would have discussed all their options and she would have made better choices. So this bill will actually save uh, people like Vicky Walsh who sadly commit amateur violence suicide. There are people uh, who suffer to the bitter end. So it is a shift to give people the ability under the rule of law uh, to choose how they go and when they go with the same sort of dignity and control and during you make your sure life. Go further? And uh, just, I just thought I'd get a bit in before I came to your question. Oh, no, you, <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> it's, not our first, it's not our first <laughs> interview. Um, but look, what I'd say about the, um, what I'd say about the, the this slippery slope argument people like to make, um, it, it's a very poor way to argue because what they're really saying is, um, you know, we don't want to argue about the bill that's in front of you anymore. Uh, we want to talk about some hypothetical 
political other situation in the future. So that's the first point I make. The mm. second point is that it might be a worthwhile argument yeah. to make if, if there was evidence uh, that it actually happened. Now, if you look at the Western Australian Parliament, you know, they've just legalised, they did a huge report on this, they looked right. at all the evidence. They said, quite rightly, uh, nowhere in the world has the law changed or the application of it changed. There's one law change in Belgium which I disagree with. Everywhere else it stayed the same. Now, if you look, okay. at, if you look at a place like the Netherlands, you know, they had quite a loose mm -hmm. law to start with and they still have a loose law. New Zealand has an extremely tight law and the only way it can ever change is if someone goes back to Parliament. I think after the last two years that we've had, um, it's fair to say that actually you know, this is not going to be debated in our Parliament okay. for a very so long okay. time. So the first thing I want to say is that um, he's got it wrong. Vicky Walsh didn't actually attempt suicide. She talked about... She was premeditating, she was thinking about that. Okay. So, in honour of her actual story, mm. she was not that. She was yeah. not an amateur okay. that was doing yeah. that. Well, I'm sorry, no, if, can, I, sorry if I got that wrong, but yeah. it doesn't, doesn't change the overall well, point, okay. does well, it? Well, no, it, it does change the point. Because the point is this, is that she said that the, the law is flawed. Why? Because it opens up the opportunity through depression and mental illness. I mean, at that point of time, no, it explicitly she says, could it explicitly have chosen... Rules those things it she could it have does explicitly that. rule yep, out... It rules yeah. that. But the thing yeah. is that she, no, it doesn't, because she still has a terminal illness, right? And here's the thing that concerns us, right? The whole thing is, is that this is an, an, an illusion of uncertainty, right? The whole aspect of likely, the prognosis and diagnosis of a condition, and as Dr John Cameron said, we don't always get it right, Jack. And if we don't get it right, we could get it wrong. In other words, we could give a wrongful prognosis. And if you're thinking about the whole thing around the slippery slope, well, let's look at what's happening in Canada at the moment. There is a law before the land and before the, the parliament at the moment to see if they can extend that. Mm. Marion Street actually said that, you know, at this point in time, we're not going to talk about as far as children. Why? It's a bridge too far, but in the future, we could go there. So proponents of this bill openly talk about it, maybe not David, but they openly talk about the fact is that we will extend the ability so that others mm. actually... Jack, can, can I just, have this can I just pick okay, up on, I, the, on the one interesting thing that, that Alfred said there about Canada? Um, they are still legislating because under their constitution, the Supreme Court is mm. forcing their parliament. Uh, we don't have a constitution. Our courts kicked this issue back to parliament. Only parliament can decide here, and that's I, why the I want to pick here. up on something else uh, Alfred, Alfred mm. just mentioned. So, so in order to, to meet the criteria, someone has to be determined to be within six months of dying. Mm. Mm. Now, you would think that in most cases that would mm. be, that, that prognosis mm. would come from a specialist. Mm. But in order for a doctor to determine if this person mm. is not being coerced mm. and is in a right state of mind, mm. you think that doctor has to have a personal relationship. Mm. So, mm. so therefore you are requiring probably a GP, someone who knows the patient, mm. but also someone who has mm. a, a specialist perspective, expertise mm. in in a certain area to make that determination. So, so how can you be sure that someone is within six months of dying? So first of all, you know, it's important to, to note that the doctor has to have extensive conversations over a period mm. of time. So whether or not they, they know them is not really the issue. The question is, have they got the knowledge and expertise? Uh, second point, uh, and this came up in the, the good doctor earlier, said, I, I need training. Uh, well, he certainly does, but doctors do not um, you know, practice outside uh, their scope of, of consciousness, of, 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 of practice. But you heard so, Michael Cullen say, yeah. even his oncologist can't say with certainty that mm. he is within yeah. six months the New Zealand yeah. Medical Association have mm. openly turned around the hospice mm. as well. Have said this, Jack. Jack, 
We've gone through COVID-19. We've mm. been asked to trust specialists mm. in the field. Mm. You know, we've got 1,700 doctors. We've got palliative care specialists who continuously. There yeah. are far too yeah, many look, risks. There's, David can talk about all the doctors. So, so, so you work you know, out how many so, well, well, the thing yeah. is this. So we've got an army of, of palliative care specialists who could come here today, who could take this place and tell you why this is unsafe, right? David's got 17 doctors who signed up. A dodgy poll that basically asked this question. Do you believe in death, that people should die with death or dignity? Well, people would say yes. It didn't yes. ask them about... None, of, none of that is accurate. It didn't no, ask them about euthanasia. Okay, yeah. but, but, but can we just get back to this prognosis issue? Because yeah. I'm not even going to start it's arguing okay. with, with anything it's Alfred's just said. It's all, frankly, okay. unbelievable. But um, in terms of the six months, remember, the six months is just making you eligible to have the choice. And you can mm. change your mind at any time. And you can also delay... Uh, when you choose to die. So it is always possible that people will start making a recovery. Uh, and if that happens, uh, of course, the, the option is easy. You, you just don't do it. Mm. A lot of people that become eligible uh, still choose uh, not to die. So yes, it's possible prognoses are wrong, um, but the prognosis doesn't mean you have to die. It just makes you eligible to choose. Okay, I want to, I want to finish with a couple of personal questions. David, if you found yourself in a position whereby you met the criteria under this Act, mm to qualify for an assisted death, mm. would you choose it? I don't know. It would be very personal and it would depend on how I felt in the circumstances of the time. The one thing I'm absolutely certain about is that it's not someone else's right to deny me the choice over my own body. I want to go with dignity, I want to have control, and I want to show that same compassion by offering my fellow New Zealanders the same choice. Alfred. If David was in a position where he did choose that or, or was considering that as an option, what would you say to convince him otherwise? Well, the, th the thing is, is, is that there are a number of forms of palliative care and support that are out there for David and for his whanau and for his family. The concern I have is not so, so much you, for David. You tell me. It's good enough. Let Alfred speak here. Let me speak, OK? It's, it's the fact is, is that those who are most at disadvantage in New Zealand are Māori. And practitioners who have been talking and their lawyers that are Dr. Hoana Hickey and others who've said this, is that this is for the white, the wealthy and the few and the privileged. Why? Because the fact is, is that the disadvantage that it has, there's been no consultation, there's no cultural competency in here. All our policies and legislation around health and disability for New Zealanders is all about cultural competency. So therefore there's, you know, that's the concern, Jack, is, is that if this was legislation that could actually consider for a few and those severe cases, okay. then we we consider well, can it. We, can we but talk still, about we're talking then? about the situation where, okay. yes, we talk. Well, I don't know if you can talk about Māori, David, because well, the fact is this. They are saying to us, they're not being consulted. We're the most underprivileged, and in a sense, we don't have access to all the supports and the systems that are here. You know, we will be the ones okay. that will be you worse know, there are, there are Maori, in this situation. There are Māori in right, favour, and there are Māori well, against. Those it are the Māori that, that are out British. there in the workforce, out there in the community that are telling us, okay. well, where's the consultation, okay. where's the hui, where's the ability to engage with them? You know, Jack, there are, there are, this is unsafe. There, there, are, there are Maori who work who are in favour. And, there's and a lot I, of I, just, I just listened okay. to Willie Jackson who says the key concept here, Willie Jackson said in Parliament, it's about mana. It's about the idea that it's your body and it's your choice and it's your dignity. But Willie Jackson didn't engage with the hui with Māori practitioners, with Māori and community. There was no okay. roadshow. There was no ability to engage with those who are most vulnerable, not just with Māori, but for those who are most vulnerable. All right. We're going to have to wrap things up. Finally, do you expect this will pass, David? 
Look, on the current polling, it certainly will. Um, but of course, there is a campaign out there uh, attempting to deliberately create fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Uh, people will see, you know, those billboards and some of those social media campaigns. And what I'd say to people is that the, the one source of, of truth on this should be um, the, the referendums.govt.nz uh, website. That the, the Ministry of Justice, I think, has actually done a good job of describing the bill. I think if people look at how this legislation actually works and the evidence from over sees it will pass. Um, if the misinformation campaigns manage to spook people, uh, then it may not. Okay. Go online, read the Act. David Seymour and Alfred Ngaro, Tēnā Kōrua. Thank you for your time. You. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on Facebook or email us Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. After the break, Labor's tax policy has been criticised as being politically cynical. We'll ask our panellists for their take. And with armed militia taking to the streets and violent clashes with protesters, we ask how America found itself so divided. This has been declared a riot. I am announcing that the next Labour government will introduce a new top tax rate of 39% for the 2% of people who earn more than $180,000. I'm a realist and I'm a pragmatist, and we are in the middle of the one in 100 year shock to our economy. What is needed right now is certainty and stability. For 98% of New Zealanders, there is no change in this policy, and that's important to me. That's Labor's finance spokesperson Grant Robertson carefully spelling out Labor's long-awaited tax policy this week, or as they called it, their revenue policy. Our panel this morning is Fran O'Sullivan, NZME's Head of Business and Economist Shamabil Yakim. Kia ora kōrua. Shamabil, I will begin with you um, and, and Labor's long-awaited policy. Is this tax policy love? <laughs> well, it's very much at the margin, isn't it? I mean, they're going to introduce a 39% tax rate for people earning over 180000 for the same income in Australia. You'd be paying 45% marginal tax rate. So what do you make of it? Um, I think they're, they're being very careful to not spook the horses, and hopefully they're thinking that this policy will last a change of government in the future. Is this political pragmatism, Fran? Oh, I think it's actually politically um, timid, frankly, and uh, I think they could have gone uh, much further. The threshold, uh, it's interesting, it doesn't capture MPs, for example. It could have come in at um, 150,000. Mm. Then it would have got uh, their own people. Uh, it's, it's very much like, you know, the people in Parliament who also um, are against capital uh, gains tax reforms. A lot of them have investment uh, properties of their own. You know, this is... Um, yeah. You see, <laughs> personal interests here, Fran. No, I mean, I mean, if, yes, if they had oh, gone harder, though. People are people. So, say, say they'd gone harder. Say, mm. say they had, you know, say, say that the threshold was much lower or, or indeed the percentage was higher. Do you think it would have cost them votes? Yeah, of course. And um, that's, that's, the, that's the equation, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no, but I, I think we're in a sort of situation where people actually have to get out there and appeal uh, to people's public spirit. And in New Zealand, we actually tend to be a bunch of quite greedy people who mm. don't actually like to pay more tax than, than we should. And there's been a lot of um, arguments uh, subsequently with people saying, well, they'll go, people, you know, the tax industry will get mm. going, well, people will arrange their affairs, that sort of thing. Well, why? I mean, why? We have huge debt out there. We have the country just piling on debt uh, to, you know, to, to sustain livelihoods. Mm. And I think we really need to rethink things.
I think it's about timing though, isn't it? I think, you know, when you're in the middle of the pandemic where we haven't had those conversations, friends, so it's not like there is a broad consensus out there around tax policy. So we've been so focused on the, uh, the pandemic response that that conversation hasn't taken place. And my sense is that this is not the time to be introducing wholesale big changes in tax policy because people wouldn't want it to be the mm. focus. Um, but come the election next time, I think it has to be a central pillar because we are going to take on this huge amount of debt and we have currently no articulated plan from across the political spectrum of how we're going to deal with it. Okay, well let's consider what things might look like in three years time. I see Westpac uh, is now predicting an 8% increase in house prices next year. Of course it's likely that retail uh, interest rates are going to drop even further. Do you think we are in for another housing boom and what impact would that have on New Zealand society? Well, we are in a huge housing boom right now. We've got house prices still rising in the middle of the biggest recession in our lifetimes. Um, but again, it's not kind of surprising because uh, we know that interest rates are very, very low, money is cheap to get, and over the next 12 to 24 months, we're probably going to see record numbers of Kiwis coming back to New Zealand. So all the pressures are there for house prices to increase. So all the issues that we've had in terms of an unbalanced housing market, wealth gains through housing, those issues are not going to go away. So we still have to have that wider conversation around capital gains and wealth taxes, which Fran talked about. And frankly, I think you know what the successive tax reviews have done is they've said we need to tax land. This is a conversation we must have. But the problem for me is that right now, if you look across the political spectrum, there is no consensus on these policies. And so instead, what we're likely to see, any change from one party will simply be undone by the next one when it's in power. Are you seeing courage from any political party, Frank? No, in a word. Um, I don't think so. I think this is an election where everyone is promising as little as possible because they mm. want to scoot over the line. I mean, where, where it is arguably courageous around ACT and people like that who are talking about lower taxes and a different uh, type of policy, um, yeah, that's, that's, that will possibly drag votes away from National because National has been perceived as being pretty disorganised, mm. shambolic, and, of course, quite ruthless in the way that they, um, you know, ramped up fear over COVID-19 and the borders. And so they've got a, you know, big integrity issue still to deal with, I would say. Uh, but, um, you know, the, fundamentally, at some stage, we have to ask your point, where's the revenue coming from? And, you know, this has to be addressed and no one is actually talking about that. Minuscule amount from 550 million coming from um, Grant Robertson with Labor, that's all that tax rate is going to bring in, that upper percentage. But no one is actually grappling with the issues. And I think as voters, journalists, economists, mm. we should be asking those questions. What is the end game then? I want to throw to you uh, a headline from the Australia and New Zealand Art Sales Digest this week, OK? No sign of the uh, recession in Auckland as, as art and object, which is an Auckland art gallery, post their strongest result in 18 months. Is there anything about the policies from our major parties at the moment that will stop the further entrenchment of inequality in New Zealand? I, I, well, I, I struggle to see it myself. I really struggle to see it because, you know, what, what Shamabil is talking about with, um, with what's happening with the property market, I mean, if you're already in the property market, you can leverage up against your mm. existing capital gains, get a deposit on another house and so on and so on and so on. You know, I mean, you, if you're, you know, 
I don't think it's actually a risky bet, <laughs> frankly, either. Well, it's actually quite a sane thing to be doing. It is very much that K-shaped recovery. This, re <laughs> this recession is very much about poor people. So people at the margin, working in hospital, retail, those high contact jobs, you're losing your jobs. But if you're wealthy and you've got a good job, more likely than not, you're actually going through this recession quite well. So right now, not just right now, over the course of the last 30 years, mm. New Zealand has seen no reduction in income equality. So we have been living with this through successive changes in government. And no, we haven't seen any broad policies from anybody yet. And I don't quite buy that, you know, the mar marginal or the small political parties should be the ones who are coming up with these ideas because it's not their bottom line mm. when they go to negotiate an MMP. So unless it's their bottom line when, it, when they go to negotiate, I think it's nice that they have these ideas around tax or whatever. But if that's not going to be the thing that mm. you must have to form government, then I don't know why we listen to them. And just how is this recession shaping? Of course, we have the preview coming up, but we also, uh, on Thursday of this week, get the GD pickers for the second, uh, second quarter of this year, which should be very interesting. What are you expecting? It's going to be grim. So <clears throat> typically our economy grows by just under 1% a quarter. We're probably going to shrink by 10% or more. This is not something that has happened in my data set that goes back to the 1930s. So this is out of the park in terms of how big this shock will be. Mm. But also what we know is that what we've been talking about is the response from government and the central bank has been bigger than anything we've experienced before. Interest rates are practically zero. The government is pumping in you know, huge amount of money through the wage subsidies, lending, welfare payments, you name it. So we're going to be okay in the sense, in the relative mm. sense, but we still need to have a plan for what comes next. We're so focused on the immediate response of the recession. We need to think about what comes next in terms of you know, reshaping our economy because we know that people are fed up with all these inconsistencies between what our values are, which is around fairness, you know, good quality housing, ownership, health, education, and yet we don't want to pay more taxes. And somewhere in there we need to find this thing that balances, right? How do we do that, Fran? Oh. Very difficult question, and I, I think it really does does come down to the voters themselves also need to start asking the right questions and asking them of politicians. It's very difficult because the election has been held under COVID conditions, so we're mm. not having, I guess, quite the degree of campaigning uh, that there should be. For instance, um, uh, Friday, uh, the leaders fo you know, fo were fronted up to Business New Zealand to mm. talk about their policies, but... No one was questioning them from the audience, of pe you know, the people on the line. And, and they should be. They should have their feet to the fire. I think that whole question which Shamabil has talked about, about where, what is the direction of travel? Where are we going? You know, what is the situation five, ten years out? Tell us about this government. And mm. they're not telling us about it. And neither is um, National Party as well. Uh, it's, it's a very difficult time and these questions need to be uppermost and if you're looking for instance a bit of a debate that's swirling around now mm. as to which companies took, took the wage subsidy yeah. and who are now reporting big, big profits, what's the morality around that? There isn't you know, when, do, when does IRD get in there, audit them, say well did you go and talk to your banks first for a, for a loan to get you through, a facility, mm. something like that. I mean that money can be clawed back, there could possibly be you know 500 million, a billion dollars sitting out there that mm. doesn't need to sit out there. So I think there's all these questions and I think we have to have a fundamental debate as a nation because even if I go back ages ago to when um, Roger Doug Douglas was, um, you know, the Treasurer, the Minister of Finance. Uh, at that time, multiple corporates in New Zealand used the tax 
offices of the Cook Islands to shelter funds, not to pay yeah. tax. You know, this is the, a long history in this country of shirking responsibilities, and I mm. think there is a moral argument we need to start talking about, particularly with the mm. future that is being painted for us. All right, guys. Thank you very much for your time and insights, as always. We'll have your feedback on the end-of-life choice referendum. Plus... Oh, my God! If America is this divided before an election, what is going to happen come November? Hawke Maya Noor, welcome back to Q&A. The world should have seen Donald Trump coming. That's the message from BBC foreign correspondent Nick Bryant, who's documented the rise of the US president against the decline of American industry and the country's increasing divisions. Nick's new book, When America Stopped Being Great, argues that massive changes in the last 50 years have fundamentally altered American society. So what does that mean for November's election? Nick Bryant joins us from New York. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Hi, Jack. It's great to be here. Nick, I know you are a, a student of history, and this is a difficult question. These things are almost impossible to distill. But can you try and define for us the, the American experience of 2020 as you perceive it? Well, America is facing its biggest public health crisis in a century. It's facing its biggest economic shock uh, since the Great Depression. And it's also facing the most racial turbulence it's had since 1968. Uh, the year that Martin Luther King was assassinated, an assassination that caused such widespread disruption across America. So it's facing simultaneously these three crises. We thought 2020 would be dominated by the presidential election, but instead it's been dominated by COVID. It's been dominated by the economy, and it's been dominated by all this racial turbulence and civil strife that we've seen on the streets. You say in your book that not only did we generally, uh, were we mistaken in not expecting Donald Trump's victory in 2016, but that we fundamentally misunderstood the gravity of the changes that have occurred in America over the last five decades. What do you mean by that? What I argue that Donald Trump wasn't a historical accident. He had almost become historically inescapable. So many American trend lines converged and culminated in his election victory. Economically, when he said the American dream was dead, millions of Americans believed him. Those who felt they were castaways in the globalized economy, those who felt like castaways in the new economy. Um, racially, America had become very divided. Even after eight years of Barack Obama, he failed to repair the racial breach. Donald Trump exploited those racial divisions. Technologically, things had happened. The internet proved to be a great accelerant of polarization. It placed in his hands these weapons, Twitter and Facebook. Culturally, what were we watching on television? We were watching reality TV. Who was the biggest star on reality TV? It was Donald Trump. So many things came together. The Republican Party had become a virulently anti-Obama party. Who was the most virulently anti-Obama candidate? Donald Trump. He, he harvested so many of these things that have been happening since the turn of the century. You know, the U.S. Constitution is often sold as, 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 a, as a perfectly worded and considered document, but I consider some of the issues affecting discourse and society in the U.S. today, the likes of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, the, the, the likes of the way Supreme Court justices are appointed by presidents in this day and age. I mean, do, do you think there are fundamental flaws when it comes to the U.S. Constitution that are poisoning American society? 
I really think the Constitution is a huge problem. It's almost like biblical tablets that mm. are so sacred that can never be changed. But they have created a system right now that doesn't work. The Founding Fathers saw this as an experiment in democracy, but the Founding Fathers now are regarded as these geniuses and their work doesn't need to be altered that much. Um, you know, just take the Electoral College, for instance. Mm. It was an afterthought of the Founding Fathers. They didn't give much time to how they would elect the President of the United States. And now you have an Electoral College, Jack, that isn't actually delivering on the national will of the people. There have been five elections in the 21st century. The Republicans have won three of those elections, but they've only won the national vote once. Now, you could argue we weren't trying to win the national vote. You don't have to win the national vote. But it is becoming a big problem because so many people see a, a president like Donald Trump, who lost to Hillary Clinton in the popular vote by three million, and regard that as an unrepresentative result. And it has created, I think, um, a crisis in representation. Do you think Trump can win in November? Look, I think uh, Biden is definitely in the, in the driving seat at the moment. Many people prefer the soft jazz of Joe Biden, a presidency you could have on the background. Um, rather than the heavy metal that we've seen from Donald Trump over the last four years. But, Jack, there are many heavy metal fans out there in America, and they are concentrated in many of the states that Donald Trump needs to win. I think Joe Biden will win the popular vote. I think that's the wide expectation. But will his polling lead translate into turnout, and will it translate into turnout in the states that he needs to win? That's what gives Donald Trump his opportunity. If he manages to hold on to those states that he won, Back in 2016, unexpectedly, Pennsylvania, Michigan, mm. Wisconsin, he, he could be returned to the White House. He is behind in the polls at the moment, uh, but this is a president who has walked away from more political car crashes than any president in living memory, and he certainly can't be written off yet. Is there a possibility, after the November result, of a mass civil violence event? Jack, isn't it extraordinary uh, that you're asking that question? And isn't it extraordinary that we have to take that question seriously? Uh, because Donald Trump is already preempting the possibility um, that he might not win against Joe Biden and laying the seeds of doubt, cast, casting questions, for instance, on poster votes saying the election will be rigged. And I think there is a real concern that we won't only just see a constitutional crisis if he were to lose and yet refuse to leave office. Um, and the election wouldn't only be decided in the courts, but there would be many people who would look to decide it in the streets. I mean, one of the chilling things that we've seen in election season is the mobilization of these militias. In Louisville, Kentucky last week, there was a white militia on the streets that was so heavily armed, and there was an African-American militia on the streets, a counter-militia on the streets. And there is this concern um, that a, a, a disputed election uh, could devolve into into some kind of violence, hopefully not too widespread. But there is that concern. What happens then in the post-Trump era, whether that's in January of next year or in four years' time? Is there any prospect of repairing the American divisions? I think the problem, Jack, is that even, in, even without Donald Trump in the White House, the, the things that led to Donald Trump are still there. They haven't been rectified during mm. the four years of his presidency. The divide that he exploited to become president um, will remain. We've spoken this century of a post-American world. My worry right now is of a post-America America. This country is so divided, it's almost as if the United States is a misnomer and an oxymoron.
Well, on that cheery note, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it, Nick. That is BBC correspondent Nick Bryant. His uh, book, When America Stopped Being Great, is available now in bookstores and is an e-book and audio book as well. Kuomotu, that is Q&A for this week. Thank you for watching. Anā mihi kia koutou Thank you for your messages and contributions. Next week on Q&A, we will dedicate our show to a debate over next month's cannabis referendum. We'll have a live audience. It should be good fun. For now, though, thanks to the Q&A team. Marae is up next. Hey Tera Wiki, we will see you next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.